guardilla del poeta es Word, la pesadilla del poeta es Word, el paraíso del poeta es Word, el compromiso del poeta es Word, Word. Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a non-profit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility and the home of Station Hill Press. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network and our cover art and theme music is by Havana poet Omar Perez, the author of Cubanology. We're live on Pacifica Radio Network and available on any and all, including your favorite podcast venues. If you want to be in touch, including with any questions, insights, notices of gaffes or blunders, suggestions for future sessions, we are very open to those, as we are to donations to our enterprise. Please write or call us at Station Hill Press or email bc at stationhill.org. And there we go, there we go, there we go. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another <laughs> session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truett. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. And we're going to, in this moment, we're going to cross whatever it is that one does to talk to each other about the nature of the island or the word island, the concept of island unto okay. itself and unto others. Amen. I, I've just returned from um, two That's islands. Right. So I feel... Return, uh, the, return to your island that yes, you live on. <laughs> I live on the island of Manhattan and I was recently um, in Hawaii for the first time on the island of Oahu for one week and then on the island of Kauai for another week. And I just want to start by saying that um, when I was on the island of Kauai, which I really enjoyed immensely, I had um, lots of vivid dreams. And my wife, Elisa, told me that, uh, well, that makes perfect sense because you are surrounded by water. That when you're on an island surrounded by water, the subconscious is evoked, is hmm. is called forth. And I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Have you heard that before? I never heard it. Yeah. No, I've never heard that before. But intuitively, it seems to make sense. It may be a little romanticized. I'm not sure. But it's hard not to romanticize islands. I mean, well, islands are romantic. That's uh, something that came up, too. Uh, you know, my first week on Oahu, I was uh, in residence at this school. I did like a scholar in residence um, spot at the school called the 
Iolani School of Honolulu. And uh, the um, one of the administrators there was telling me that, oh, um, there's a lot of transients at this school in terms of faculty members because people move out here looking for Eden, looking for a paradise. And uh, at 60 to 70 percent of the time, it doesn't work out. Two years later, they leave. Huh. Uh-huh. And I was struck by that. I've never lived on a an island uh, other than Manhattan, which is a little bit different. But I guess it makes sense. Well, yeah. And it's sort of the role of of Hawaii in America. I mean, when I was a kid, I watched Hawaii Five O, which I don't really remember, except maybe a little bit the uh, theme song. And um, But I do have the sense, everyone grows up in America with this sense that the one option is to go to this amazing, perfect, flowering place full of happy natives that will offer you sumptuous feasts. You know, it's it's a part of the mythology of this country. Yeah, I noticed uh, in Honolulu, there's a lot of um, vagrancy, mental illness, and the same contact of mine that said oh, a lot of people move out here. Because it's the, like the final frontier, hmm. and end up you know those who can't return for whatever reason end up marooned, and it, and it leads to um, some social issues in the city. Hmm. Wow. Well, because there there isn't much economic opportunity. No, there are not a lot of industries there. Um, it really is hard to get by if you don't have independent means or some sort of connection to an institution, like a school or university, or tourism, I suppose. Yeah, I guess that's the one business, really, is tourism, which has got to have been uh, hit by COVID, I would think. I was in the Soviet Union in 1990, and I noticed in the uh, on the newsstands, they had two magazines that were just about Cuba. You know, they were in Russian, of course, and they were about, you know, the fantasy world of Cuba. And I realized, wow, Cuba is the Hawaii of the Soviet Union. You know, it plays that role of the exotic uh, island paradise. And I guess if you're kind of, I think the way it worked is if you were kind of high up in the Communist Party, you could go there. That's that's proved um, true for the island of Cuba, you know. Uh, for, you know, that solid period from the 60s right through into 1990-91, then it got cut off. Yeah. Um, yeah, very much so. And the Russian presence is still so strong in Havana because it has this sort of Star Wars tower, um, <laughs> you know, that's very tall and then comes up like a mushroom. You know, with this turret effect, and it's very huh. tall and dominates um, that part of Western Havana. Yeah, for sure. And what is it, that tower? I don't know. It's kind of part of their embassy complex. Mm. Um, it's some, I believe, more than anything else, it's probably to telegraph some kind of sinister, like, re, you know, watching observation mm. i don't know uh, yeah yeah you know there's a Dominance. very similar tower uh in warsaw P- 
Poland from the Soviet era. That's the by far the highest building. It's um, quite centrally located, and it was described to me when I was in Warsaw, Poland, about a while ago, maybe 15 years ago, 14 years ago, as having been a gift from Mother Russia. <laughs> you mean you said this, what's the word, ironically? Ironically, yes, but it was yeah. still there, and it, it, it uh, fit a similar description to what um, you just characterized, Sam. Yeah, and yeah. There, was a, there was a building near where I grew up. I grew up in Inwood on the very northern tip of Manhattan. And in Riverdale, there was a there was a some sort of complex where I think people from the Russian embassy lived or something. And mm-hmm. it was a big fortress like building, like a notable building. You know, that, wow. that fortress style seems to be the Soviet style. Well, it has to do with insulation, Mm. which is an island word, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, like Latin, insula is the word for island. And insulation, you're creating this buffer, separation. Insular. Yeah. Yeah. Which is ironic that Russia is the largest country in the world and yet has this isolation you know you think of an island being small you can be really large and insular too yeah i think it has to do with the kremlin maybe Hmm. the sense of power being a centralized structure i think we have the same predilection we've developed the same predilection in the united states the uh, pentagon maybe yeah, the Pentagon, assuredly, yeah. And the White House. Right. Mm. Yeah, when I was in the Soviet Union, I was struck by the similarities between the USA and the USSR, both essentially monolingual places, both very provincial in a way, both places that were kind of on the edge of Europe, had an inferiority complex to Europe, mm. felt that they weren't really civilized and cultured. and then compensated with you know technology and other qualities maybe ideology in the case of soviet union and then and also empires that kept growing and growing and growing swallowing uh in the case of the u.s swallowing the hawaii and swallowing alaska Mm. until buying alaska from russia in fact so Mm. that so that they almost touched the two empires yeah it's a super interesting thesis that I haven't thought of in those words, Sparrow, that sense oh. of provinciality. I mean, I developed this theory staring at the art. I went to a lot of art museums, you know, like a tourist does when I was in the Soviet Union. But I remember the one particularly in Minsk for some reason. And I remember the labels being bilingual in uh, Belarusian and in Russian. And this is before Belarus was a separate country, as it now is, you know. And that's when I started to get a kind of a hint that, that uh, you know, these places like the Ukraine and, and Belarus were not com- perfectly uh, satisfied with being part of this Russian empire. But anyway, looking at this 19th century art, there's just like a lot of bad art that is weirdly similar to uh, the USA bad art of the 19th century. This, uh, what do you call it, this kind of homespun sort of uh, 
colorful little scenes of small town life, you know, that are kind of done in a European manner, but not very well. Sentimental. Yeah. Uh I think there's one, I think it was in one of these museums of like the organ grinder in the snow and his monkey has starved to death, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, yeah. Well, of course the Russians are much more better at, much better at whatever tragedy than, than we are. But, but just the, yeah, this kind of right maudlin, uh, you know, little depictions of, you know, provincial kind of like, you know, the real Europeans are making paintings of Socrates and Aristotle <laughs> at this time, you know, history paintings, serious paintings and the, Russians, the Americans are making these kind of cute postcards that they're that they're calling paintings. Mm-hmm. Second rate, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. So the the provinciality made the Soviet Union feel like an island of sorts. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. and and linguistically, even more so, the way America is an island linguistically. You know, the way, uh, I mean, Trump wanted to build this wall separating us from Mexico as if to say, you know, we don't want any people that don't speak English here. We want to keep our monolingual, you know, island character. And the Mm. Russians speak Russian. They don't speak any other languages. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, going back to the idea of us feeling inferior to Europe, um, you know, just speaking from an American standpoint, and that um, insularity, um, you know, and provinciality and imitation and things like that. I guess what's interesting to for me is that the supposition that Europe is where the real artistic force um, originates from it I think more in terms of the last 500 years it's been intersections with other cultures with hmm. the frontier you know with the influx of that um, other ways of seeing the force of that that you know even penetrated sort of Christian, um, and particularly Catholic, you know, in terms of the Americas, um, you know, the influence back was so profound. Mm. And in terms of American, the, you know, it was slavery and black people, you know, coming here from Africa that has created what is really our significant contribution to experience and understanding and pathos and new forms Mm. chango that force is really you know coupled with the european makes for an interesting landscape those moments of uh coming together but it took a while it took a while for for the uh americans and the russians i don't know what's happening in russia artistically but it took a while, yeah, let's it, say, at least for the Americans. I'm I'm not saying that uh, our Europe is the center of the world. I'm saying no. other countries are imitating Europe, believing it's the center of the world, and instead of inv- inventing their own native form, 
create this kind of bastardized form of European art because they can't find their own persona. Pastiche. Yeah. 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 And it's not till the 20th century, I think, that Americans started to realize, like it turned out, what the Americans wanted to do was take the paint and throw it at the canvas. Like once they started discovering that, you know, once Jackson Pollock started dripping all over the place, suddenly American art, you know, um, came into its own. So, you know, I think... Yeah, well, let's hope we can keep going. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know where it's, you know, it's hard to know. I'll have to go because I'm going to read at the the Whitney Biennial. So I'll be... uh, I'll get in there and I'll look around, see what's happening. Oh, you're reading at the biannual. That's cool. No, 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 it's just some kind of whatever scam or something that I, my, my friend Eve Packer asked me to write a review of her new book. So I did I laboriously read the book, thought about it, wrote it hundred words, a thousand words is a lot for me. Yeah. That's a lot. And, uh, and I ended up maybe a little shy of a thousand words by the time I edited it down. And then, uh, I wrote it for this magazine, Tribes, Gathering of the Tribes. So uh, I think for no money. And then uh, like a week later, they emailed me, hey, you want to read at the Whitney Biennial? So, you know, my uh, whatever uh, kind gesture was rewarded. Plus, I get $100 if I can figure out how to work this email link. Nice, man. Nice, Para. Yeah, I think, think, though, just in terms of going back to – that horizon of making art and of new forms and, uh, mm. you know, new discoveries and the continuance of that. You know, we live in a time in which islands are disappearing due to um, rising sea levels. Yeah. That's interesting. And I guess yeah. that's, you know, something that our children will live through. Mm. There's some islands that have really already disappeared, right? I think I read sure. about it some. Pacific Islands. And in a way, also, islands are disappearing in terms of culture Mm. because of, um, you know, kind of the monoculture and uh, that indigenousness is, uh, I think, um, narrowing. I don't know. That's just, you know. Yeah, it's true. Probably true. Well, I mean, maybe the whole thing is more complex. You know, I think some friend of mine, actually, who's part Native American, is a poet in Manhattan. She, well, I guess she lives in Brooklyn, but I know her through the Poetry Project in this uh, St. Mark's Church. And she is studying her indigenous language, which I am not going to remember which one it is, maybe Cherokee. You know, so people are working on reviving these languages. Certainly, I have friends that are studying Yiddish, trying to keep Yiddish from disappearing. Yeah. I mean, it's a a complex story. You know, it's not that there's both sides to it. It's not simply a matter of the monoculture marching on forever. There are resistance. Islands of resistance. Yes, islands of resistance. Yeah. I have a. Uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine today who's a, a scholar of Yiddish. Oh yeah. Yeah, Laurence Lang, wonderful woman, French woman. Yeah, I guess islands of resistance are sort of like the temporary autonomous zones. Oh yeah. Like um, Occupy yeah. Wall Street in Zuccotti Park. 
Yeah, and then they, they expanded all over the whole world. I mean, there were there were Occupy Wall Streets. You know, I don't know, probably on five continents or something. For was a there while. An, was there an Occupy Woodstock? I think was there. I'm not sure. There was one in Poughkeepsie. Yeah, we did the thing one. in Catskill. We did Occupy. We did Main Street. We did uh, Wall Street to Main Street, or remember up in uh, Catskill? Yeah, I was part of that. We took over sort of the uh, Main Street and did different facets of, you know, what would happen if the energy reversed and mm. went back into small towns and uh, also a lot of attention on energy on right. becoming autonomous energy uh producing and um mm. you know different ways of life super interesting discourse um you know occurred out of that yeah we're, and connected with some of the poobahs of uh the zakati park occupy oh. wall street oh, yeah. were, were you two involved yeah. in Occupy wall street did you spend time in zakati park my recollection is that sparrow did but i don't have I, I don't remember. I visited there. I had little kids, and they yeah. we all spent the night there. That's right. Oh, really? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Got that. yeah. You had a tent? I don't know. There was a sort of space for us, and there were sleeping bags and stuff, and we uh, snuggled down. How did it yeah. go? You didn't get raped. We got up early in the morning. Yeah. And took off. <laughs> and took how, did off. The kids, yeah. Yeah. how did the kids like it? You know, I think that that it was fun. Yeah, it uh, sounds fun. Adventurous, fun you know, spend a little time on adventure. the island of Lower Manhattan, you know, of Manhattan, on Manhattan Island, yeah, which has it's always a, been a place of resistance. Sure. And Millville lived down there, and we can't oh. forget that Sylvester Stallone was born there, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Mm. Was born where? In Manhattan? Yeah, in Lower Manhattan. Oh, okay. I never knew that. The whole Five Points area. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, 150 years ago. Amazing. I don't know if it was, was it resistance or just crime? <laughs> you know, is there a difference between crime? I think Peter Lamborn Wilson kind of feels that crime is a form of resistance. Really? I think that's the feeling I get. He's He sort of feels that, like, the... the uh, the collapse of crime, the the lowering crime rate is a sign of people losing their will to fight against the system, kind of. Huh. He should come live on our block for a little while. Oh yeah, you have some crime. He, yeah, there's been a lot of there's been a lot there's been there's like an armed rob there's a lot of crime increasingly. Like there's yeah. armed robbery the other day in the corner. Mm. Some people have been shoved into the subway tracks. Um, Killed? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Some robberies. Where, where is that? Well, that's 103rd? The, the 96th Street Red Line Station. It's happened twice in the past six months. Red Line meaning what? The, oh, the, um, uh, the, the one. Two, three, IRT. One. The 2 3 yeah. and one Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, wow. But Sparrow, when you moved out of the city, moved to Phoenicia, did you feel like on some level you were moving to an, a cultural island? Did you feel island did initially? Because I was watching <laughs> that interview you did on, that's on YouTube. Oh, yeah? Where what you're talking about uh, having moved to the country 
And I think you refer to it as an island experience at one point. You're standing in your backyard. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. Uh, my friend Mitch Korber made a series, yeah. Exiles of New York. Exiles of New York, yes. That's yeah, he interviewed me and my wife. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, the, the, my main memory of moving up, first of all, one of the crazy things that happened to me <laughs> as I was moving out of my apartment, you know, we put all our stuff into our Datsun or whatever little tiny car we had and we moved upstate. We already had an apartment upstate, you know, that we went to on the weekends. We were sort of weekenders, but now we were moving there permanently. And we left some of the stuff in our, in our, we still kept our apartment for a few months downstate, but basically we put all our stuff in a car and drove off on one day. And as I'm walking across the street into my car to leave Manhattan really for the last time, next to the car in the curb, next to the curb between the car and the curb is a dead sparrow. And I'm oh, like, Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. You know? <laughs> there it was, the great symbol. Yeah. You don't yeah. have to be a poet to notice that uh, you're dead now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And but I was going to say, like, the story uh, that I think of is I, I knew a little bit uh, Robert Criscow, the famous rock critic and um, who lived kind of a block from us, really, and still lives there. And I told him I'm moving out of the city uh, to Woodstock, you know, to the area of Woodstock. And I said to him, uh, you know, Woodstock has a music scene. And he made a sound like an unreproducible sound, like something close to like, ugh. you know, not quite, <laughs> ugh, but like, just like a groan, a, a kind of guttural groan, <laughs> which proved to be kind of you know prophetic <laughs> like the the it's a pretty good description of the music scene up here i mean i think musically is the biggest problem for me i'd say you know among of, of all the aspects of human life well the performance of music forms an island doesn't it yeah in I other mean, words you feel, you feel uh, that which is an earshot is oh, yeah. sort of on the island of the sound that's made, you know, particularly in live performance, but just playing anything in a space. Many people now, they uh, they have a very special island where they play music, and it's between their ears, because, you know, <laughs> you put earplugs in. Yeah. But nevertheless, there's a sort of community that's joined by music in performance in an yeah. open space. Yeah, I'm a deadhead. I consider myself a deadhead, and I felt that at the Grateful Dead concerts, maybe more than anywhere else, more than even at avant-garde jazz, which I like better now than I like the Grateful Dead. But there was a kind of like magical tapestry thing that happens with the dead where they kind of cast some kind of spell around the room, and you feel like you're in this, this little center of the universe. I remember when I saw Swami Muktananda, I think for the first time, I thought, wow, this is just like a Grateful Dead concert where there's that center of the universe, like you're in a room that's somehow like the navel of the universe, this uh, this room that you're in, where this is the room that is most important of everything that's going on right now in the entire universe, that feeling. 
that's yeah. the re- that's the room that we each occupy in reality. Sparrow. <laughs> it's just that there's certain moments at which the veil is, you know, pulled back. I think I have this new theory about myself that I'm like a person who sort of like my erotic, you know, I'm always trying to figure out like, what is my, am I gay? Am I, you know, I think I'm probably a voyeur, but I don't really know what my erotic personality is. My new theory is I'm sort of a groupist. Like for me, groups have an erotic power. And a lot of my dreams uh, involve groups. Like there's some, a whole group of people I've never met before. And we're all together. We're on a bus or we're about to take a bus. We're traveling through Israel or it's often a little unclear where we are, but there's lots and lots of people and they're filing in front of me. And it's all very enjoyable to me. And yeah, I, that's a I sort of that, island experience, isn't it? You think know about a group everybody that, on the island, and there's a group. Yeah, a group is a kind of island. And so for me, I think, yes, I understand what you're saying, that each person is the center of the universe. It's true, but I only experience that when I'm in a group. You know, when I'm in a group, I feel I'm in the center of the universe. When I'm When I'm by myself, I feel like I'm missing the party. The party is somewhere... I went to the Naropa Institute in 1976, and I literally was always missing the party. There was, you know, the party had a little bit wound down from 1974 when it was really raging, and 75 when it was still going strong. It was a little less, you know, frenzied, but somewhere something interesting was happening, and I was never there. Mm-hmm. And that you were just just uh, after the peak. I was after the peak, but also I was like in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that I feel that when I'm alone, I just feel like somewhere something really fun is happening and I'm not there. Uh, It's interesting. Hemingway, one of his sayings or, you know, beliefs or um, poses is that he was always in the right place at the right time. Huh. Like he prided himself on, you know. Finding right. the uh, center of what's you know happening and being inside it. Even the title, Move, "The Movable Feast," a book that I've had for decades and never read, suggests that kind of like it's he's at the feast and it keeps moving and he's always there wherever that, it moves. <laughs> that's the. Um, it was published later in his life, or maybe even posthumously, but he uh, it was about his first stint living in Paris with his. Um, first wife Hadley uh-huh. uh, when he um, was initially introduced to Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas and before he returned to the U.S. and then returned to Paris a second time. Uh, this is a bit far afield but um, of uh, islands, but uh, Sparrow, you were talking about your erotic personality. It reminds <laughs> me of that short John Ashbery poem, My Erotic Double. It's very short. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Okay. My Erotic Double by John Ashbery. He says he doesn't feel like working today. It's just as well. Here in the shade behind the house, protected from street noises, one can go over all kinds of old feeling, throw some away, keep others. The wordplay between us gets very intense. When there are fewer feelings around to confuse things. Another go-round? No. But the last things you always find to say are charming and rescue me before the night does. We are afloat, 
on our dreams, as on a barge made of ice, shot through with questions and fissures of starlight that keep us awake, thinking about the dreams as they are happening, some occurrence. You said it. I said it. But I can hide it. But I choose not to. Thank you. (laughs) You are a very pleasant person. Thank you. You are too. From 1979, as we know, from the book, as we know. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I don't have anything. To, I don't have anything to say about the poem. It just, uh, it just, I just remembered it when you mentioned uh, your erotic personality. That was a great poem, Andrew. Yeah, Thanks great so poem. much. Man. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I yeah, felt like I maybe I interrupted yeah. something by reading it. I, I mean, I think, I think uh, language so. itself has that sort of. Mm-hmm. sense of an island you know text i find uh mm-hmm. i find is a sort of island for me in terms of mm-hmm. where i can go especially uh, uh, internal I, and, yeah yeah the internal language I, I know uh mr ashbury once said to me that um a great number of his poems were inspired by the internal dialogue that had been occurring in his head between two voices, usually, for as far back as he could remember. <laughs> that is a great line. Yeah, and I, I, it makes sense. And that is a bit of an island, right? That conversation. Mm-hmm. We don't always know how to share that with other people. Um, but you know, it's very real. It's very much of a center. And you feel it in that poem. That poem is, is definitely a dialogue between two Yeah. Two kind of imaginary or non-physical people. And between one, I don't know, one's self in daylight and one's um, erotic self, try, you know, each trying to figure the other out. <laughs> I like hmm. the, the intense wordplay that, that occurs. Yeah, that's also, I have a friend who's kind of like an erotic person and she was like trying to figure out my erotic self. I was discussing with her my elusive erotic self, and then she thought about it, and she said, it has to do probably with language. Probably your erotic center is linguistic, which is kind of what uh, I thought of that in that when you were reading that poem, that, you know, when you're a poet, probably words are erotic to you, and that's kind of what he's saying in that poem. I, that's how I took it. Yeah, I like that. Now, we haven't talked about the word island. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a funny word because it's got that S that oh, yeah. is not sounded. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, one is, you know, drawn to sort of this, uh, the is island, is island. What's the, <laughs> what's the, etymo- what's the etymology? Land, the land of is. Yeah. I mean, um, it comes from, a Proto-Indo-European aqua, you huh. know, you know, from which you get all that Latin stuff. The way they spell it is a k w a. It's kind of oh. Scottish, yeah. Plus land, and then you know, island is from i water, which is Old English, and um, the it, the s maybe comes in as a written carryover to make it similar to isla insula the other romance languages yeah i mean in french it's isle which is isle isn't it yeah yeah 
I think somebody just had sort of a spaz about how to spell it and just threw in the S, you know. It'd be interesting to find out the moment. Probably goes back to the 13th century to Wycliffe, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he produced a lot of the early writing downs of English. He was the father of the Lollard movement, the heretical movement. We've talked about. Yeah, we have. Yeah, I remember that. I don't remember the Lollards. I can't really recall why they were heretical. Oh. Oh, I remember one aspect that they believed in the priesthood of the laity. They they had this. They were kind of anti-clerical. They believed that, um, you know, anyone who was in touch with the spirit had the capacity to traffic in the sacramental, Mm. which included women. So yeah, yeah, which 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 made it um, especially radical. Um, There's a, a I believe a 15th century British mystic by the name of Marjorie Kemp. Um, her uh, narrative is um, published under the title of the, uh, uh, the Book of Marjorie Kemp. And there are some scholars who believe that she was a Lollard and she was very outspoken, brass, sort of like the uh, theological wife of Bath. <laughs> you know, always getting into trouble with priests and bishops. And she was. When, it, when is this again? She was beaten. Uh, I believe it was at some point in the uh, early to mid. 15th century. She was writing uh, around the same time that Julian of Norwich was writing. Hmm. Another famous British mystic, but one who was uh, much more um, orthodox in her Catholicism. She was beaten, you said? She was beaten. Uh, Marjorie Kim was beaten by um, her husband. She she gave birth to 14 children. I believe all of them died in infancy or early childhood. What? Yeah. I wow. Mean, and uh, she wrote uh, very candidly about her experience as a woman, as a theologian, as a pilgrim. She tra- traveled to the Holy Land and got into all sorts of trouble. Huh. Um, uh, fascinating figure. But the Lollard um, theory about her is that she uh, she assumed the uh, the mantle, a uh, priestly mantle. Mm-hmm. Um, and was even trying to consecrate host and, you know, mm. ran afoul of the church. <laughs> A lot of these yeah. heresies end up in Protestantism. Like this idea of the laity, priest laity. Um, like my wife, for example, is a, a Christian scientist. They have no uh, clergy. You know, uh, the uh, uh, Quakers have no clergy. So, you know, this idea eventually surfaces, this idea that we don't need a priest. We can directly contact God. You know, know, going full circle. It's kind of like part of our own islands. Yeah. (laughs) I sat with a Quaker group for one year. Oh. And and, uh, it did feel, um, you know, just pulling a few strands together that, that meeting of the hour and silence, unless somebody was witnessing, really created an island experience. Everyone was sitting in a circle, sort of facing one another. Mm. It, it was a pretty powerful experience for that year, I thought. And you really, like like you were describing um, Swami or the Dead Show, you really felt like the most profound things, what was happening in that circle, and that everything else was uh, secondary or tertiary, at least for that hour. Mm. 
Yeah, it's sort of the power of silence uh, to create a kind of island. Mm. Just on another jag, it's yeah. interesting that from the West, the first American play from the oh, West, yeah. from Europe, oh. is called The Tempest. William Strachey was an explorer who wrote a narrative about washing up on um, Bermuda that was published in 1610, the same oh. year that Shakespeare wrote his final play, hmm. or the final play he um, authored um, all by himself, The Tempest, um, which was written hmm. either in 1610 or 1611. So he definitely hmm. drew from that um, that age of discovery travel travel narrative um, from 1610, William Strachey. Same, same way that uh, Robinson Crusoe was based on a similar narrative of some explorer daniel defoe wrote it like what would that be 150 years later 1780 something like that the same way that melville based or you know drew from a real experience in moby dick the wreck of uh of a ship in the pacific that ran afoul of a whale right which ended in a yeah, in cannibalism. Oh, yeah? As I recall, yeah. Hmm. Which it's, wasn't in Moby Dick. Just somebody, just, uh, what's his name? Ishmael is uh, clinging to the wreckage. He's not eating anybody. Hmm. No. No, the cannibalism is sort of internalized into the novel itself. But the novel um, sort of cannibalizes itself, you mean? Yeah, not not at all through Queequeg at all, but there's, yeah, exactly. Like, there's something eating um, at the, eating itself um, mm. at the center of Moby Dick, which is um, really Ahab. Oh, yeah, he is. Yeah. Something's eating him, that's for sure. Yeah. That's um, for damn sure. And that also is a sort of island form, like Ahab was on his own island, you know? He's, yeah. um, yeah. And it happens in history. It's happening, you know, people speculate now. With Putin? In the form of Putin, yeah. Well, Putin, I read somewhere that he is fanatic. I guess he's kind of a germaphobe, which is a kind of island-like malady, mental problem. And uh, right. so he's so germ-phobic, he's been kind of physically isolated from other human beings since uh, for two years, I guess, since the start of the of the coronavirus epidemic, and that has made him more and more of an island unto himself, less reliant on advisors and other people to help him, which could explain this kind of chaotic. Uh, attack on Ukraine doesn't make sense to attack, you know, seven cities at once. Uh, you know, he won't listen to his generals. This is what I read. I don't know how true it is. Yeah. And those photos of him are striking. The, the ones that have been unloosed into Western media of him sitting at the far end of some table with advisors a half a mile away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like in a kind of uh, those old movies where like the English Lord and his wife are eating at some vast table at either end of a table, you know, 50 feet long. And 
kind of muttering little pleasantries to each other across the uh, mm-hmm. vast space between them. <laughs> it's scary. So there's a kind of sinister face to Island, which I think is, you know, which we're kind of touching on. Mm. Um, that sense in which people think they, I, I, I uh, this is complicated. To a certain extent, I, I, I really wanted to ask you all if you feel draw around you in your life a sense of being on an island. I used to, when I lived on Manhattan or in Manhattan, imagine myself with nobody around and being alone you know, as mm. I walk through the streets, particularly at night or early in the you know, morning. And uh, I, I can answer the question. I felt um, islanded as a result of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. In in some ways that uh, were um, I'm still searching for language for it all. Um, therapeutically, I might, you know, I have this new therapist, this young Ian. It's actually been quite good. But uh, I. In some ways that were delightful, but also in some ways that um, did become sinister in some ways. Um, or Sinister is the wrong word. Uh, there was some darkness there that I think was necessary, but it wasn't all good. I felt hmm. pretty connected prior to the pandemic to lots of projects and institutions and initiatives and other people. Hmm. And that sphere started shrinking as a hmm. result of the pandemic. In a way that um, clarified things, brought me close to certain people, but um, left me feeling pretty, pretty isolated at times and lost in my own head in a way that wasn't always so um, uh, good. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. uh, podcast has been largely the product of the uh, of the pandemic, right? I mean, we, I don't remember. I have a bad memory, but. I don't know if we started it before the pandemic. But. Yeah, we did. We were, we were about four or five months in, as oh, I recall. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're, but you're really deepened during the pandemic in, I, I would say, uh, over the past two years in uh, a lovely way. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like part of that, you know, attempt to kind of, make some connection outside of one's isolated life. It was helpful for me, uh, enjoyable and also helpful. Uh, even when I was like tired or like, Oh, I don't know if I have it in me to do an hour. It's 10 PM. Yeah. Um, it almost always, uh, invigorated me. Uh, I felt connected to you two and to a new set of possibilities and ideas. Theoretically to our audience. <laughs> to, to a theoretical audience, yeah. I think it's gotten better for me the less I've thought about the possibility of an audience. Interestingly, oh yeah, yeah. At first, that was uh, throwing me off. I it oh. just led to a, like heightened um, self awareness and. Um, well, and also, you are a teacher in a school, kind of prestigious school. I mean, if I were you, I would be a little nervous about. Of course, nice person to begin with. You're not going to whatever talk about your like most brutal uh, sexual fantasies, but you know, nonetheless, you, you, there's probably an anxiety there. You know, there is, and several students have quoted from the podcast, so that some are listening to it. Oh, some of these kids. Not yeah. many, but a few. Hey, hello, kids. If <laughs> yeah. I may call you kids. 
I want you to know that I do a snipping. You know, you whenever do. I hear us say weird stuff, I just oh, take yeah. it out generally. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, pre- I appreciate and, it. Yeah. It's interesting how editing, like sound text or visual text or written text, they also are sort of, they form, there. there's an island formation to that. Mm-hmm. Where but you're taking you things. Out. Yeah, you're taking stuff out. And you're forming up like a thing that has boundaries or, you know, bounds or has an mm-hmm. edge, you know, and a shape, mm-hmm. um, even in linear time. And um, so I think that that's a sort of uh, terra forming. Yeah. It's a type forming. of. Uh, it's an isolation. Of... It's an uh, insulation. It's a separation, you know, but. Knowing where something begins and ends is important. There's a type of uh, kind of poetry people are doing now. I don't know. Maybe you guys know the name for it, where you like you take a page of text and you like black out like 99% of the words and you leave like five words, like little islands in the text. Do you know what I mean? Sam has done oh. that in his book, Dick. Right, Sam? Oh, I would say. I mean, I think in the Morse code. Yeah. Forms that kind of sense um, graphologically looking at it, because then inside it are stage directions from Shakespeare's tragedies. And oh. those stage directions are like islands. Mm. I believe mm. that, yeah, that's true. You know, uh, speaking of islands, uh, and, you know, I mentioned darkness, and of course I was thinking, um, of a, a novel I read in middle school, um, that many read, uh, Lord of the Flies. I know, I just made, wrote that down on my oh, little, uh, you know, notepad here. <laughs> where something, uh, monstrous comes out of people. Um, I'm also struck by the opposite, and we can go in either direction, but, um, some uh, individuals do their best work on, on islands, uh, marooned. And I was thinking of Robinson Crusoe, as mentioned earlier. Um, Sam mentioned The Tempest. Uh, you know, there are many who believe that that play is largely about um, theater and ars poetica and uh, Shakespeare's, mm-hmm. you know, good the globe to, itself, the, yeah. to the island of the globe and to the theater and giving up his magical creative powers. And I was also thinking of John of Patmos, who's... Um, Exile oh, yeah. to, uh, you know, he's 90 at that point. We've talked about this a little bit, uh, most likely according to historians under the Emperor Domitian, and he's, um, relegated to hard labor as a guy in his early 90s, exiled onto an island, uh, the island of Patmos, which, um, as we know, um, was a, uh, full of s- stone quarries that the Roman Empire used for their war machine. So they would send uh, dissidents there, uh, political exiles. And he uh, had some of his, uh, you know, he had his series of great visions, apocalyptic visions there. Hmm. So, you know, (laughs) islands are a fecund place for the visionary as well. Um, I'm trying to remember, uh you know, I think I read the book Utopia by Thomas More when I was in like high school. Yeah. Utopia means no place. Yeah. And is it an island? A per, it's a perfect community. It's a it's a perfect society. And I have a vague memory that it's on an island, but I'm not positive. I, re- I remember reading that at Bard. I loved it. 
Well, I like oh, the yeah? class. I liked the class. It was called Utopia and Dystopia. Oh, okay. Yeah. What was the dystopia that you read? <laughs> Philip K. Dick? No, it was all like uh early modern stuff. Um we read I don't remember the through line, but I do remember we read some Rabelais. Oh, okay. We read um a French author named Fournier. Huh. Um Thomas More. Hmm. Yeah, it was visions of the utopian that often had some kind of dystopic undercurrent. Huh. It was uh-huh. taught by a medievalist. It was a fascinating. I mean, I couldn't wait to get to class. I loved it, but I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember what it was about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think islands are a utopic, dystopic hmm. structure. That they're they're tricky. Well, hmm. you know the poet Robert Kelly, of course. Personally, you both do. Uh, yeah. I remember being at a reading where he he said that he thought that his greatest, the greatest title of uh, his book, any book that he wrote. My goodness, how many books has he published? Like forty by the time he was forty. So now he's over eighty. Maybe he's published eighty. But he thought that the most brilliant title was "Not This Island Music." Huh. And I, I don't really have a point here. I've just always wondered what that means. Not this island music, but something Man, about. But I've always loved island music. Well, I know, but you, you mentioned Sam that the island is a confluence of what the positive and the negative, or uh, what? What? What language did you just use? I was really intrigued by that. Utopic, utopian, and dystopian. Yeah, I think yeah. that islands have both faces. Mm. Um, I mean, utopia is not possible. Only the struggle is real. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that spoken like a true Marxist, Sparrow? I don't know. I think that Marx uh, believed in utopia. He, uh, If you read the Communist Manifesto, it sounds pretty utopian. Uh-huh. So, uh, although perhaps, you know, it is perhaps the truth of Marx's struggle, certainly. I think maybe that was the mistake that the Soviet Union made, was trying to create the utopia that Marx talks about in the manifesto, because it can't, as you're saying, it I'm not sure that utopia is impossible. I, I guess I have a, what's the word? I'd like to say that I am uh, an agnostic about everything. So I uh, I don't have a firm belief that you can't have utopia. Like, I'm I not sure you, I'm going to die, think, for example. <laughs> yeah. I, I've now, I guess, sort of surrendered to the fact that it's not, possible without a evolution without a revolution in human consciousness um and a p- enormous change in you know where people put the center of their attention and lives and bodies um you know, unless there's a change of consciousness in which we realize that there, you know, is, as John Donne wrote, you know, that no man is an island. No one is an island. 
she isn't an island, you're not an island, you know, we're all together, um, you know, just holding on at the edge of the raft of, uh, you know, the fragility of life on Earth. So, um, particularly lately. Yeah, yeah that's all. <clears throat> I mean, I guess I I've been thinking the opposite thought. Like, I'm in a group really? of the unbearables. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in this yeah, group, the unbearables. And uh, I was just thinking the other day, like, how little conflict there is in the unbearables. There, you know, we don't have a leader, but we have a non-leader, this guy, Ron Combe. And he's just a very decent person, you know, humble, modest, kind-hearted guy from Pennsylvania. And uh, though he's lived in Long Island City for decades. And he kind of steers the unbearables away from, you know, the petty, you know, chaos of most groups. So I I have the thought that the, it's surprising that there can be little utopias. You know, a lot of it maybe depends on the leader and maybe on the people that are being led that they refuse to be led by a tyrant. How much time do the unbearables actually spend together? Not not to be not to like challenge what you're saying. Uh, yeah. You know, at this point, uh, you know, pretty much zero. Well, but, you know, I did a reading uh, in Easton, Pennsylvania, I think it was maybe last year and it was wasn't it was kind of organized by shalom newman he's one of the unbearables who has an art center in easton he bought this former factory you know it was like a like a school for uh secretaries i think and he made it into this art center and he invited a whole bunch of us to stay there and have a reading so there were a bunch of unbearables there. It wasn't entirely, perhaps, an unbearable reading. So, you know, once in a while we do something like that. I remember uh, in – Sparrow, you were asking some questions before we started recording about my time at Harvard Divinity School. And I remember um, a bunch of um, female friends at the Divinity School who rented out a house. And they moved into the house to create a little society. Uh, and it was gonna, it was gonna be a gynocratic experiment. That was their language, not mine. <laughs> and, uh, it did, I remember, uh, it lasted like a month. <laughs> and then there was a restraining order between two. Yeah, it just got, <laughs> it, went, it went south. <laughs> Didn't that happen to, um, some of the transcendentalists? Oh, yeah. There was that utopia, that farm that they tried. Was Brooklyn. it Emerson? Right? Brook it, Farm is yeah, one of them. Isn't that metaphysical? One of them was called Fruitlands, which is like a funny name, you know. It didn't quite work, right? It, it, None it, of them worked. Harmoniously, yeah. yeah. And then I was reading... Uh, How about Jonestown? My goodness. Well, yeah, that one. No uh, argument about that. But uh, the uh, I, yeah, I was reading a biography of uh, Thoreau and Thoreau was a surveyor, taught himself surveying to make a living eventually. And one of the places he went was a failed utopian collective in New Jersey huh. that they were like selling off to developers, uh, you know, in 1851 or something. You know, already it was happening 
what uh, you know the gentrification of America was well underway by then, and uh, so he went to survey it so it could be cut up into lots and made into suburbs, basically. Yeah, most of those, but I some mean, of them do. Uh, let's see, the, there's one uh, that's run on behaviorist principles. There's Skinnerites. It's in, um, I think it's called Twin Oaks in Virginia. I once uh, Twin was, Oaks sounds like like a condominium subdivision. Ha! Isn't well, it? I think maybe they, these like you know developers stole the motifs of the communes you know? and i was once hitchhiking in virginia i think and i met this couple or a man and a woman i don't know if they were a couple who lived in twin oaks and they just seemed like the world's most like healthy happy you know mentally sane people i ever met huh. and you know it's behaviorist so it's it's kind of an anti-idealist system you know they're not uh, you know it's not based on universal love of humanity it's more based on rewards and punishments i guess i don't know how it works yeah it's interesting that the world as we know it began in kind of an island also hmm. you know in terms of eden oh right oh Mm-hmm. Yeah, the four rivers of paradise. And that, you know, part of the American promise is that kind of Eden. Mm-hmm. Is the idea of the um, 16th, 18th, I forget, of an acre, you know, with the white picket fence or, you know, mm-hmm. and the and the single family unit, which I guess it was a sort of relatively short incarnation in terms of human experience, right? But that's been always the um, – and that one lives in that kind of um, insulation in yeah. Sula. Hmm. Hmm. Eden is to be contrasted, no, with the land of Nod, or the city of Nod, which exists in a parallel universe of sorts and is not so much an island, right? Is what it, is the city of Nod? It's something well, in the it's, Genesis? Yeah, it's uh, where um, uh, Cain is banished to, the land of Nod, mm-hmm. but Nod is the city, maybe is uh, an early urban experiment. I, I, I hear what you're saying. It'd be interesting to find out the exact reference to Nod. I don't think mm. at that juncture it's a city, like you said, but it'd be oh. interesting to know its first instance and exactly how it, uh, um, yeah, it would be. operates in the biblical story. Because it does seem to be weirdly coexistent with Eden. And isn't there like a mystery? Like, who did Cain and Abel's children marry? Like, isn't it sort of, it seems like there's something outside that story. There are people outside that story, like the land of Nod. It's mm. the it's a kind of logical fallacy of uh, the of the biblical narrative that it's it's these can't be the only people on earth, or who would they? They don't marry their brothers and sisters, apparently. Does Nod come up in Jewish tradition as you've experienced it? 
Sparrow? No, I've never heard of it. Okay. I mean, you know, I my Talmud Jewish or... education is pitiful, but I certainly have never heard of it. He captivated Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, really? I, isn't, uh-huh. it in, isn't it in The Raven? Isn't there a... a, a oh, really? Or, I'm sorry, you know I'm thinking of Lou Reed's um, redaction of The Raven. Oh. It's uh. there. Yeah, he would, <clears throat> but I think it may be a heroin <clears throat> reference. Like going oh, on the I Nod, see. the land of Nod. Yeah, that's right. it. Do you know what I'm talking about, um, Lou Reed's The Raven? I think I... I believe that I heard that whole album when it came out. Somebody gave me a cassette of it, but I okay. don't, I never listened to it much. I loved that, uh, that album songs for Drella that he made with J- John Cale. You know, that album. I don't it's, know that one. Oh no. It's no. around that same time. It's, uh, <laughs> it's songs about, uh, Andy Warhol. Ah. They told mm. Drella was his like nickname. I uh, just watched on Netflix the um, oh. se- several part series on Andy Warhol, and I found it very very interesting. Um, I didn't realize that he attended church almost daily. Yeah, yeah, you might want to go. To, I don't know if this show is still up, but there's a show at the Brooklyn Museum um, of uh, Warhol as a Christian. He was an that, icon painter. It makes it makes complete sense. And there's this church. <clears throat> there's this church Warhol. on the Upper East Side that I was always drawn to, called Saint Vincent Ferrer, in the early '60s on uh, hmm. Lexington. I was oh. always drawn to it, and in the documentary, sure enough, that was his church. Oh, really? It said in the show, yeah. in the show in in uh, the Brooklyn Museum, that he went to three different churches. Okay. He went to Saint John the Divine, surprisingly. All right. He went to his local Catholic church, which maybe is the one you're talking about. Yeah, St. Vincent's, which was near his his townhouse. And then he went, because he was raised, let me see if I've got this. Byzantine Catholic. Slovenian Catholic, I thought. Okay. They called it. There's all these different Catholic churches besides the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, the um, these Eastern Rite Catholic churches permit clerical marriage. Oh, okay. Many of them do. It's interesting. And they were in the language of I mean, the nation, right? Yeah. Yeah, I get the sense that Warhol lived very much on an island. Oh, yeah, with his mother. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that he was very isolated, but I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think that he had a whole kind of gang around him. I think his his love life may have been sort of a little you know, fragmentary, but I don't know. And, you know, <laughs> this documentary, you know, um, chronicles a few partners he had, but the intimation is that they were, um, um, like committed relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Platonic, non-sexual committed relationships where there was some sort of concupiscence, but, um, he, it was very um, ambiguous as to like what did or didn't happen on um, mm, in sure, erotic sure. levels. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. Who right. cares? And yeah. yeah. yeah well, I sure. care. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever see him? I I, I never the saw. The thing I wanted to say is also, I think Bob Dylan he definitely lives on a kind of an island, and I feel like 
you know, when he plays in public, we're allowed to visit that island. <laughs> is that is there something to that? Well, it does seem somewhat true. I mean, I what I heard about him is that he travels around incognito. Yeah. So he, you know, has a whole elaborate disguise so he can visit the real world. He's not as isolated. Most stars, most people that are famous, are um, live on an island, live on some kind of island, I think. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, it's probably true that he does. But of course, he tours a lot. Is that an island? I was thinking about it today because... Because um, Sam and I ran into each other on this bus coming up from New York City today. And uh, we were, you know, we didn't realize we we're on the same bus for two hours. And then we we're talking to each other. We went to the CVS together and got some pistachio nuts and kind of hung out. And, uh, you know, it, I, we were talking about islands. And I'm thinking, like, is a bus an island? It's an island, but it's moving. But it is kind of an island. With mm-hmm. these people, you can't leave. It's more of an island than an island where you have uh, bridges and boats that can get you off the island. Here you're really stuck smelling the farts yeah. of all these people that you're stuck with. One of the uh, the great uh, bus poems of all time, I think, is um, Elizabeth Bishop's The Moose, in which uh-huh. she, I think, her second longest poem, but it's all about that islanded experience of a bunch of strangers entering into a weird sort of um, intimacy, if you want mm. to call it that, over the duration of this uh, all-day bus trip from um, Nova Scotia to Boston. Huh. Um, but you know, it's only chronicles the first half of it, uh, up to the appearance of the moose, that brings oh. these people together in this moment of collective effervescence in hmm. a profound way, but then they drop back into... Um, um, strangerhood. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange. <laughs>